our scripture. This is Luke chapter 12, verses 35 to 48. And I am reading from the God's Word translation. Be ready for action and have your lamps burning. Be like servants waiting to open the door at their master's knock when he returns from a wedding. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. I can guarantee this truth. He will change his clothes, make them sit down at the table, and serve them. They will be blessed if he comes in the middle of the night or toward morning and finds them awake. <clears throat> of course, you realize that if the homeowner had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let him break into his house. Be ready, because the Son of Man will return when you least expect him. Peter asked, Lord, did you use this illustration just for us or for everyone? The Lord asked, who then is the faithful, skilled manager that the master will put in charge of giving the other servants their share of food at the right time? That servant will be blessed if his master finds him doing this job when he comes. I can guarantee this truth. He will put that servant in charge of all his property. On the other hand, that servant may think that his master is taking a long time to come home. The servant may begin to beat the other servants and to eat, drink, and get drunk. His master will return at an unexpected time. Then his master will punish him severely and assign him a place with unfaithful people. The servant who knew what his master wanted but didn't get ready to do it will receive a hard beating. But the servant who didn't know what his master wanted and did things for which he deserved punishment will receive a light beating. A lot will be expected from everyone who has been given a lot. More will be demanded from everyone who has been entrusted with a lot. You may be seated. Thank you, Vance, and thankful for you and Linda and how well you've served as our deacon of care. Thank you, dear brother. Back in the 1970s, young man rose to prominence. I think uh, at least half of our congregation will know the name David Cassidy, uh, who became famous on the Partridge family. Uh, but in so doing, just rise to international fame, became a real uh, teen uh, you know, heartthrob, and uh, became world famous. So I was interested, where I came across him was a few years back, uh, his daughter, he was suffering at a relatively young age, uh, 67, and on his deathbed, as his daughter Katie would say, that she, she in an interview said, my father's last words were so much wasted time. And I think about those four words and just how much sadness, how much alertness that it ought to create in those of us who are among the living. And you look at a guy like David Cassidy and you think, well, here's a guy who seemed to have, uh, you know, if you could kind of draw a blank slate, you know, this is what you'd want in life. You'd want to have an exciting life. You'd want to be recognized, uh, want to do and go as you please, to have plenty of money, uh, to do all those types of things. But then to come lying on your deathbed and in your last gasp to say so much wasted time i ask you say what about us you know we're here today and many of us most of us probably feeling strong and we're thinking well you know my day will come where i'll be on my deathbed but that is not today but deep down we know we say we're going to be there that there'll be a time where we look back on our life to all the commitments that we made the, the people that we knew to say are we going to look back on our life and say 
with Cassidy, I wasted so much time. I pray not, and today is an opportunity to say in a hard-hitting passage, if you've been coming to Providence for any length of time, there's no surprise in what we do. We go through the Bible as it's been given to us, that we don't pick and choose the Jesus that we want, but we take Jesus at his word. And so you say parts of today, say this is a hard thing, uh, but it's a real thing. And I do pray for our congregation that it brings things into focus and gives us great purpose in life and indeed great comfort for those of us who know Christ personally. So in this, as Jesus at this point, this is a biography of Jesus, he's gathered his followers, we know his disciples, and he's instructing them on what we could say are the distinctives of following Jesus. And I hope you feel that even today, more, and more so each and every day, that as you follow Jesus, there are distinctives that uh, to not, of a non-believing world will make us seem stranger and stranger. But it's always been that way, and so Jesus is saying to follow me, this is what it means. So let's uh, begin by making some broad strokes out of our passage and uh, then some application. So first, key point. No one ought to miss this. Jesus is going to come again physically and visibly. You know, you look at a passage like this, a verse 40, you must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming. I think some of us say, well, I know that, you know, in, in Christians and in the Scripture, you have this idea that Jesus will come again. Is it just on the sideline? You kind of, you know, strange parts of Scripture and tough to interpret. Say, please don't think that. That Jesus routinely and with great regularity tells his followers that he will come again in majesty and in glory. I'll turn back a few pages. So Luke chapter 9, listen to this. For whoever is ashamed of me, Jesus says, and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. I could flip forward to Luke 21, same kind of language. The Son of Man is coming again to judge. That Jesus would say for those who, as we are, under his word that he wants to make it clear that he's going to come again in judgment and with authority. Now, you say, well, what, what else about that line there in our verse 40, 12 and verse 40? You'll notice, what is this language of the Son of Man? Uh, what does this mean? Why does Jesus talk this way when he's talking about his return? It's a very clear connection to Daniel chapter 7. So Daniel was a Hebrew prophet. He lived hundreds of years before Jesus. And in chapter 7, Daniel gets a vision and he says, I saw one like a son of man who was given all dominion. So Jesus is taking up the language of Daniel and basically saying, you know our prophet Daniel, when he predicted that, the, that there's going to be an end of history, that I'm coming back, I'm that guy, and I'm coming, and may nobody be confused about it. Jesus will come again in authority and in judgment, and that will mark really what we could call the consummation of all history. That when he returns, he's going to put all things right. He's going to restore the creation that we've made a mess of, that all the things that humans have taken into their own control, and we've committed such great folly and such great embarrassment, and on and on it goes. We know uh, about that as we talk about it every week. Jesus is going to make all things right and put all things straight when he comes in judgment. Now, I know what you might be thinking, you know, end times, um, you know, this is a strange thing. Again, Austin, don't you know, we, we're real people in a real world. We can't be bothered by something. I, I hope you see that Jesus' clarity on the end of history at his coming might be, in fact, I would say it is, the most practical thing for our congregation. You say, why is that? Because any time we want to talk about things like purpose, meaning, or progress, 
we must have a real goal in mind. So how often, say even our politicians, you know, they'll talk about being progressive and we're all talking about purpose and meaning. If you think of those things, they only make sense if you have a clearly defined goal. And so what we say is, well, we have a lot of temporal goals. I'd like to finish my degree. I'd like to be romantically involved with that person. You know, whatever it might be, uh, you have these little temporal means that when we arrive there, when we're striving for those things, uh, they leave us feeling very empty. Say, so we all know that. We've all been there. Say, so if only I, we think in our, in our fallenness, if only I achieved this, then I'd be really happy. We put all of our resources and all of our energy into that thing, only to find that that search is actually uh, very empty. And when we arrive, uh, you know, the last rung on the ladder just leaves us with, with a, a greater fall. And yet, we still need a goal. Let me put it to you this way. If, uh, you know, I'm walking out of the church after service, you're all driving out, say I start walking west, and some of you roll down your window, you say, you know, pastor, you're making great progress. You say, that would be determined on whether I'm going to Mitchell's or ZZ's, wouldn't it? Uh, you wouldn't say I'm making great progress towards ZZ's if I'm going west. Alternatively, if I'm going east and I'm trying to get to Mitchell's, I wouldn't be making good progress. The point I'm trying to make is that when we think about moving forward in life, about direction and purpose, we've got to have some kind of overarching goal that frames our activity. Otherwise, we're like Cassidy at the end of his life, say, well, I kind of did what I wanted, and now I'm looking back, and I wasted a lot of time by being like, you remember that game, Dizzy Dizzy Dinosaur, that was just kind of scattered and moving all, all over the board. So Jesus, I think what he's saying is my followers should frame their very lives on the known fact that I am coming again to consummate my kingdom so that which is done for me and in my name will not be done in vain and it is a purpose for life and a progress in life that cannot be taken away by human folly and circumstance. And it ought to be no surprise that those who've tried to set up competing systems to Christianity always have to have in their system some kind of goal, as unconvincing as it is. Marx being the greatest example, right? Dialectical materialism is built on there being this kind of grand achievement of, of an economic result, uh, ultimately. I was reading a bizarre essay from the uh, composer Wagner on art and revolution. He seemed to have this vision that one day there'd be this community of uh, the Ubermensch who were all good artists. So I said, he's got a lot of work to do. Uh, but in any case, say all these materialistic systems have to have an overarching goal in mind if you want people moving in any direction at all. And what I would say to you is Jesus gives us the end of history. And in so doing, gives us our proper orientation our direction, our purpose, the place in which our energies ought to flow. Okay, hope that's clear. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming. He's coming again. You know, McShane, uh, the Scottish preacher, would play this little game with his fellow pastors. He'd come over Sunday evenings, gather them around. He said, gentlemen, you think Jesus could come again tonight? They said, well, we don't think tonight. And he'd open his Bible to Luke chapter 12. You must be ready because Jesus is coming again. And I hope we are those that say Jesus is coming again and he could come today and we're to be ready. Now, one other point on this, verse 40, and uh, please here. At an hour you do not expect. When Jesus talks about his coming again and when those who knew him well talked about his coming again, he made it very clear that um, we're not to go around calculating 
when that day should be. So Revelation chapter 16 and verse 15, like a thief in the night. Matthew 24, like a thief in the night. 1 Thessalonians 5, like a thief in the night. 2 Peter 3, like a thief in the night. So you think John, Matthew, Jesus, Paul, Peter are all saying, we know Jesus is going to come visibly to consummate all history, but we're not to go around calculating when we think that date's going to be. And how many times, you know, we're watching some kind of crank out there and he says, well, I know Vladimir Putin is like this guy in Ezekiel, and surely this is Gog and Magog, and we got to get Boris Johnson in here, and then all those guys fade, and we have a new set of tyrants and bad leaders and whatever it might be. I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to Boris, but you know what I mean. Uh, so let's not do that, because what it does is it, it discredits our faith, right? If, if we choose a date and we, we try to plan when Jesus is coming, we're not taking him at his, his plain word. Uh, he, he wants us to know he's coming. History's moving in a direction. We're not to calculate the day and the hour alternatively, and here's point two, and I would say the really, the really practical point for us today. Until Jesus' return, we have a mission. So be on task. Look at how our passage starts. You know, love verse 35. Stay dressed for action. You know, some of you are here today. You think, What's more boring than being a Christian? I mean, you go to the building once a month if you want, and you hear that guy speak for 25 minutes, and that's what it means to be a Christian. How dull. I pray you don't see that. That there ought to be nothing more invigorating and challenging and adventurous than being a follower of Jesus in these times. This week, you've got a lot on your calendar, don't you? You also have a lot of unexpected appointments. You have people in your life, tasks to be done, ways to use your money. Each one of those is an opportunity to do what? To be on mission for the king and the only thing that really counts. Friends, this whole chapter, be on guard, be awake, be alert, be ready. Put your faith into action, not a stale commitment, not listening to a Bible talk, but on the move for the sake of the king. That's our mission. I suppose that in all this, if I could summarize in one concept what we have as Jesus would lay it out in these three, there are really three illustrations, and I think you bring them all under one heading. Very important word in the Bible, therefore a very important word here in that order, right? Nothing competes with Scripture. Jesus talks a lot about it, therefore it's a high value here, is stewardship. Stewardship. You never hear me talk about a tithe. Nearly three years now, I don't think I've challenged anybody to tithe. Say, so what I do see in many pages of Scripture is that each one of us who've been called in Christ to follow him have been endowed with time, talents, and treasures. Every one of those, every one of those buckets, time, talent, and treasure, none of that belongs to me. None of that happened because I'm a clever guy. None of that happened because I've outcompeted the others. Anything that I have is on loan from a gracious master who's entrusted me with those gifts. Everyone here this morning, every member of our church, you have a brain in your head. You have a body that God has gifted us with. We Christians don't separate out the mind and the, the body, but rather we have an integrated picture that our bodies are gifts from God to be used from him, that we've been entrusted actually with quite a lot of material goods. And what Jesus is saying is, 
here's the illustration to capture these three. Jesus is a master who's entrusted a host of servants to look after his property, namely the cosmos, the, the creation. He's going to come again, and there's really going to be a whole spectrum of stewardship. And he's calling us in this passage to be good stewards of with what we've been entrusted. And, you know, I, I suppose this goes without saying. I was thinking this week, can you think of anything more sad than, than bad stewardship? I mean, there's something about bad stewardship that just you walk away feeling so powerless and so sad. I, many examples I could have chosen, but I thought this week, I don't know why it was put on my mind, but the country of Venezuela, um, it wasn't that long ago, you know, you read Forbes and The Economist, say Venezuela ought to be an extremely well-to-do country that God endowed them with an incredible amount of natural resources. There are people of great history, and you just look at it, and you say, now here's a country that ought to be thriving. It should be raising up citizens and world. And yet, through the folly and the selfishness of human involvement has become really the example in modern times of bad stewardship. Some know in a different arena, back in the 80s, a young man by the name of Len Bias Len Bias went to the University of Maryland, was selected second overall by the Celtics, and two days after being drafted, uh, died of a cocaine overdose. And you say, how incredibly sad, this young man with such great gifts. And that pierces me, friends, because here we are, right? We're sitting here. And say, man, I like those. God's given so many gifts to us, and have I used them for my own ambitions rather than for the king? who gave them to me in the first place. So may we again always hear routinely, this won't be a one-time sermon, but you've heard it many times in three years, you'll hear it many times again because the Bible talks about it many times. We've been entrusted with much. May we steward it well, to use it, to build others up in the name of the Lord Jesus, to use all that we have to lift him high. So the moves we've made so far, Jesus will return in glory physically, uh, visibly, he will return in judgment and authority. Secondly, while he's gone, we have a mission, and that mission is to steward all that we have so that the name of Jesus might be lifted high. That is far from being boring, but in fact, the greatest adventure and the greatest purpose any of us could possibly have. Now, lastly, in a challenging portion, 41 to 48, really, as Jesus returns, when Jesus returns, that he's going to evaluate how every one of us have stewarded our time, talent, and treasure, that there will be a judgment. The good news is, you have a look at verses 43 and 44, blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes, truly I say to you, he will be set over all his possessions. Again, here again, the master's entrusted the group of servants. When the master comes back and he finds the servants on mission, on task, there will be a great reward. In fact, what they're entrusted with is more uh, responsibilities to say they're going to have an even greater impact. They'll be entrusted with more. So who is this? Some might say, well, this is in response to a question of Peter, so this is nice. We know Pastor Shaw can be lumped in that group. I would say, actually, it's every member of our church. Say, how many of you are leading Bible studies and participating in small groups and teaching the children and edifying each other uh, uh, during service. They, all of us, again, have been entrusted with an amount of good. So I would challenge you for each one of us who've called on the name of the Lord by his grace, be re been regenerated, we're serving the king, we've been endowed with gifts, and as we use those, 
there's a chance uh, for those of us who are stewarding well, right, to be richly rewarded as we please Jesus at his return. And may I say, friends, as far as I can tell as a pastor in this church, that so many of you have stewarded your time, talent, and treasure so very well. And I hope there's an element of this hard teaching that says, keep going, keep pressing on, keep serving Jesus, keep using all that you are to serve him because there is a great reward. And in all this cultural clutter, don't you forget it. He's coming back when we don't expect it, and he will be very pleased when you're serving him. But the scary part then, if I can press on, but that servant who says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect it and in an hour he does not know and will cut him to pieces and put him with the unfaithful. I say, that's a harsh word. He says, but I think we can begin by saying we know at least one person who was in the audience when Jesus first preached this, don't we? You say, well, there's Matthew and John, you know, they're there, the Jameses. Oh, and there's Judas. So Judas, hearing the word, surely Judas would be ready and be on mission. May there be no short saying about it. There have been many a preacher. Very easy to stand up here and say the right things. Very easy to go through the motions. None of that impresses Jesus, rather what it is, is a tender heart. That like Alden said, uh, the poet, many of us, our works have tasted a lot better than our lives. And here is a stern warning from Jesus to say, if we're those here who think, well, by showing up and saying the right things, that this ticks the, bo ticks the box, say, when he comes again and we are exposed, that it is the real condition of my heart, whether I've been postured in humility under Je unto Jesus, and whether I've served him with what I've been entrusted. Now, that's a harsh thing. And I think as we close now, uh, as we think about really uh, this point of judgment, verses 47 and 48 with the closing line will sum it up. And the servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready to act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Now here, everyone to whom much is given of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. You see how scary the irony there is for Providence Church. There is nobody, I would say, who's been in, could there be a congregation entrusted with more than ours? How many Bibles do we have in our houses? You have the Bible in your pocket on your phone? We have a large church family by global standards. We've been blessed with a ton of resources. And here's Jesus say, I've entrusted you all with much. And guess what? Have you been entrusted with much? We're responsible for much. That we want to use all that we have to point people to Jesus. Say, I say this, and I'm not joking at all. When we all get to glory, you look for Mary and Vera up by Jesus and you look for me down at the bottom in the shack because we have been entrusted with much and there is great, great responsibility with that.
And I hate, I don't want to leave us on that note alternatively. I say, I don't think Jesus in this sermon would want us all leaving, say, well, am I doing enough? Do I need to be more? Am I anxious? You say, no, he just taught. Look, last week, he says, don't be anxious about anything, right? Trust me. Say, I, again, I say, I don't think we're to go out wringing our hands saying I need to do more. But rather what this is is to say, church, stay faithful. Be mindful of Jesus. Don't be afraid to continue using all that we have to proclaim his name, to say he is the chief end for our lives, that we're about his business. So much so, am I convinced that we're not to be anxious? You can think about the great uh, prayer of the early church. goes all the way back. If you read the benediction of 1 Corinthians, ha have you ever seen a, a church, and it's called like Maranatha Bible Church? Have you ever seen the word Maranatha? I remember thinking, what is this Maranatha? Say Maranatha is of of Aramaic uh, origin, and it means our Lord comes. That it was a cheerful benediction for the church. We are those who've called on Jesus as king. We're assembled as his church. We want to proclaim his name. We want to be on task for him. And far from being afraid of his return, actually we long for his return because then we know that this great big mess will all be put right and we can rest under him. Come, Lord Jesus. In that vein, little illustration, hope it helps you remember. There was a man named V. Raymond Edmond. V. Raymond Edmond was the longtime president of Wheaton College. And in the 1960s, the aged V. Raymond Edmond got up to preach at chapel. And the title of his sermon was called, In the Presence of the King. And as Pastor Edmond's sermon crescendoed, and he was challenging the congregation to be prepared to meet the king. God took him, and he went to meet the king. I said, that should be the posture of our church family. Jesus is coming again. We don't know the time. May we be alert and on mission and really following him and taking our commitment seriously. And that is a great joy. Again, not in a point of anxiety, but a point of great hope, and I hope great meaning in your life. Now, non-Christian, non-Christian, you're here today. You're really upset today, aren't you? You say, I can't believe I came on the day like this because now I've heard all this stuff and Jesus says I'm more accountable for this stuff. I say, yeah, that's right. Uh, so those of you are going to have some sore ribs. I can't believe I came on the day where it talks about accountability. I hope you're not upset today, but rather today is the great gateway. The great gateway to seeing that God sent forth Jesus into history that a lot of us are like David Cassidy. We're out doing our thing, trying to make a name for ourselves, accumulating lots of stuff and doing this and say, I don't really know what it all means. Say, now, here it is. Jesus has come on the scene. He's forgiven us our sins. He's gonna put all things right and he's calling you today by virtue of being a Providence Church that you can turn from your sin and come to Jesus. Say, I need Jesus. And today is the day of new birth for you. And far from being a place of judgery is a place of great hope and confidence. I pray you do that. And so as I pray this in, we'll have an opportunity in a minute to think about the completed work of Jesus as we take his supper together. But if you would, pray, and throughout the week, we will think more about this. Loving Father, help us to apprehend this great word this morning, intimidating at one glance when we have been endowed with so much. You've given in this congregation, Lord, some really good minds, some really good Christian lineage, a lot of resources. 
And I thank you for, throughout our history, nearly 30 years now, there have just been wonderful examples, Lord. I don't want that to be wonderful examples of godly stewardship of people giving, giving of all that they are to expand the kingdom. I praise you and thank you for them. For those of us here today, say, yeah, we know this, but we're doing our own thing. I pray, Lord, that there wouldn't be any conviction from a young preacher, but rather that it would come through your word to say, oh, what's really true about this? Is there a great purpose in things? And if so, is today the day to repent of my sin and turn towards Jesus? I pray that that's true today too. And so, Lord, help us to be faithful and wise managers, building each other up in love, taking advantage of the times because the days are evil that you've called us to be a church in this time. May we not squander it, but be about our Father's work. And Lord, as you come, may you find our church wise and faithful stewards. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.